promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. Don't regret this, Lord. I'm a wonderful person. Holy Gospel according to John, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. And they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the gospel of our Lord. Please be seated. And let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I need you to know something this morning, and I need you to hear me clearly. Uh, you are not Jesus. I know. Groundbreaking, right? Shocking. You're, you're, you're basically thinking to yourself, well, Pastor, I know that you get my name wrong like 90% of the time, but at least I think you would know if I'm Jesus. You, you go to school for those sorts of things, right? Well, again, you are not Jesus, and I know this because John the Baptist has told you so. The, the religious leaders of the day come to John, and they want to hear his credentials. He's an unauthorized preacher. He doesn't have a license. He doesn't have a seminary degree. He didn't go through the ordination process of, of, of candidacy and then, and then uh, endorsement and approval and all the interviews and all those things. He's not on a first-name basis with his bishop. And people are flocking to him for a sermon and a baptism. So like good church bureaucrats, they need to go out and find this guy whom they did not send, and he's out in the wilderness. And he's, they, they know just one thing about him. He, he's not part of their crowd. So they ask, who are you? And he responds, well, just if you're wondering, I'm not the Messiah. I've always found that weird. They ask, who are you? And he comes right out and says it. Well, I'm not the Messiah. 
As though, as though John knew that's what they meant when they asked a simple question, who are you? But they didn't know that that's what they meant when they asked a simple question. They, like I said, I think in all seriousness, they just wanted his credentials. Where did you graduate from college, John? Did you graduate from college? Did you even go to college, John? Who is your advisor? Papers, please. Let me see those transcripts. But John comes out and says it completely unprompted and unasked, I am not the savior of the world. I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the one coming into the world to save it from itself. I am not the one who is to come from the stump of Jesse, that little shoot that's going to spring up to new life. And so that's how I know you're not Jesus. That's how I know I'm not Jesus. Because John says he's not Jesus. And and he says actually of Jesus that he's not worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. And I ain't John. I couldn't even hold a candle to John, and I'm, I'm one of your pastors. Just ask my wife, or my kids, or my neighbors, the dogs in the neighborhood. And Jesus actually says of John, there is no one greater born of woman than John. And so if I'm not even good enough to be John, how can I possibly imagine that I'm Jesus? And yet... How many of us spend our entire lives trying to be our own Messiah, to be our own Savior? We do it when we get up in the morning. We take those vitamins, we eat right, we get a little exercise, because we hope, we hope, we just hope that by doing that, we might add just a few more days to the end of our life. We, we try to get rest, we try to take vacations, see a counselor, take our, our spouses or significant others on dates, because we hope in some way we might craft a life for ourselves that might last forever until it doesn't. Or, different direction, if I just vote the right way, if we just get the right person in office, then we'll just save the world, right? Or, or how, about, how about this direction? If we just keep our children from making the same mistakes, I can be their savior at least. Keep them from just not doing anything wrong. Sort of like Marlon in Finding Nemo as he says to Dory, well, I promised I would never let anything happen to him. And Dory, being the prophet that she is, speaks truth. That's a silly promise. You can't never let anything happen to him. Otherwise, nothing will happen to him. Trying to live a life without mistakes is a life that believes it can live without Christ. Trying to live a life without mistakes is a life that believes it can live without Christ. The biggest work of Christmas, the Christ child coming to you, is to tell you that you are not him. And that is a good thing. A person trapped in quicksand can't save themselves. A drowning man can't pull himself to safety. And that's Jesus for you, coming to be that hand to pull you out. That is Jesus for you. That's the wonder of Advent. That's the glory of Christmas right there. Now, the leadership eventually asked him other questions. Are you Elijah? Are you the one that Malachi spoke of at the end of his book and said this Elijah who, who God had taken up in a whirlwind, not a chariot, by the way, just if you're wondering, a whirlwind, 
will come again to prepare a, a people for the coming of the Lord. Are you that dude? Okay, we get it. You're not the Messiah, but are you at least like a step down, like, you know, you know middle management in the kingdom of God, maybe? And he says, no. Elijah, in many ways, for us, should be this emblem of the church or this emblem of the institutions that we create. Like, like John the Baptist, Elijah was called to, to bring people back to God, but he wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he wasn't their savior. Uh, think about on Mount Carmel. Those of you who, who went to Sunday school, Mount Carmel goes up there, he challenges all the Baal prophets, and they build their two altars. And he says, oh, but here's the catch. Fire has to come from heaven, from your God. And so they dance around and they pray and nothing happens. And then he drenches the whole thing. Fire comes from heaven. And people go, oh, Yahweh's the Lord. Yahweh's the Lord. Yahweh's the Lord. His work was to bring people out of their idolatry to the living God who sends fire from heaven. And that is the work of the church. That's the work of of, of pastors. But the problem is that we tend to go a certain direction in our sin to place our people, our pastors, our institutions, our churches on such a pedestal that they take the place of our Jesus sometimes. They no longer become the communicator of the good news or the bestower of the gifts of God, but become the thing we treasure often more than Jesus himself, the church becoming our savior, our pastors becoming our savior. Please don't trust in me with that. We have to do things a certain way. If people are to be saved, we tell ourselves. We, we wring our hands thinking, oh, we need to look a certain way. We, we have to package ourselves in a certain way. We have to have a certain presentation if, if we're going to fit in. We, we need to be run like corporations because they look successful. We have to follow these bylaws mimicking the world around us because, well, the world looks cool and we want to look cool and we need to be competitive, so we're going to do that. Pyrotechnics. Fog machines. Even though if we're to learn anything from John and or our Jesus, coolness is not part of the equation. Think about it. John, he he was not dressed for success, was he? Camel's hair and a leather belt. Never mind the beard caked with honey and the locust legs sticking out between his teeth. His B.O. was off the hook. Needed a manicure. I think about Jesus, born into a blue-collar situation from family of redneck Galilee. He was. Born in a stable where we're told in Isaiah that there was nothing of his appearance that would make us desire him. He was not the starting quarterback. He was not the homecoming king. And again, that's the glory of Advent. That's the beauty of Christmas. Your Jesus coming to you in all humility and meekness to vanquish your foes of sin and death because there is no other way. Not in pageantry, not in power. And so you're not Jesus. But praise be to God, you have one. He came for you. He yearns for you. He was born to die for you, that he might forgive all your sins, all your attempts to cast God aside or live without him and bring you back to him through the ugly image and yet the beauty of the cross. Then John finally makes sure they know he isn't the prophet either. This prophet that that we heard about from our first reading that Desiree read to us from Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Listen to him. This speaks very clearly of the prophets of old, like Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Pick your favorite prophet. Nahum, that's a good one. 
It was their job to, to call people to God. That was their biggest thing, trying to get us out of our idolatry. And they preached both law and gospel, both demands and promises, trying to hand over the promises of God while also speaking of the way that we've thrown those things aside. But the problem we have with Moses is that the image that he portrays for Israel and the image that he portrays for us is law. Big L law. He was the law giver. He was the one who handed over the tablets, right? Do this, don't do that. Very little grace and mercy there sometimes. At least it's hard to find. And the worry is that, for me anyways as a pastor, is that some of you maybe think that's how Jesus works too. If only I become more like him, then I'll be saved. If only I'd be a better Christian, I'll be okay. If only I do my best, God will do the rest. But the emphasis that Moses actually places in that entire passage is these words. Listen to him. Listen to Christ. Listen to John, at least. He was a prophet, after all. He tells the leaders, I am not the one. But then he does tell them what he is. I am just a voice calling to you. Calling to, to, to bring you to the straight way of the Lord, the highway. No wandering, no curves, no Highway 395 where you get stuck behind a truck and can't pass. It's the straight way of the Lord. No climbing up a mountain to be close to him as though, oh, if I just do all these little steps, I'll, Jacob's ladder working my way up to God, I'll be awesome. Or even worse, thinking that there's some sort of valley of the shadow of death where God abandons us. No, it is a straight highway to God through our Jesus, paved by his blood, this one who comes to you soon in a manger. In 1989, John Hughes graced us with one of the best Christmas movies of all time. Anybody know it? National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. In it, Clark Griswold is trying to have the most hallmark channel of Christmases ever. He wants the lights. He wants the the, the presents. He wants the tree, the perfect tree that he forgets to bring a saw for. The dinner. He wants the Christmas bonus to put in the pool, right? And if you've seen the movie, you know all of it goes to hell. The lights won't turn on. Aunt Bethany's cat gets burnt to a crisp. Uh, Uncle Lewis torches the tree and the gifts. A squirrel gets loose because he has to replace the tree after all. And, and eventually the police storm the house because Cousin Eddie uh, goes and kidnaps Clark's boss over a misunderstanding around the Jelly of the Month Club. Clark carries with him this image of Christmases long ago. It doesn't help that he has home movies to try and pretend that that was how they went. And he, he gets at his wit's end and he comes to his dad and says, what helped you get through Christmas? And his dad is honest with him and says, well, I had a lot of help from Jack Daniels. <laughs> Here we are thinking we need to do something to make Christmas real or worth it. That's Clark. And I wonder how many of the Clarks are in the room today. Making something of Christmas because somehow you have to have that Christmas spirit. I need to be cheery and jolly and Santa hats and all that stuff. Needing Christmas to be extra Christmassy. 
needing to manufacture the most salvific holiday season yet because COVID seems to be taking everything else from you. So maybe, maybe you can have this thing. But yet, I wonder, without all the contraptions we place around ourselves, the joy and the light may be too dim to help us see the truth of Christmas, the truth of Advent. While you are not Jesus... And no amount of tinsel or, or eggnog or twinkling lights is going to change that. But any lack of those things will not remove from you the reality that your Jesus came for you. He handed himself to you. So the most adventy, Christmassy thing you can do this year is to really realize that you are not him, but you have him. You do. He is yours, whether you feel it or not. Maybe this year you need a John the Baptist to come to you and make his voice heard in your ears to to call you out of the comforts and the manufactured life you have made and bring you out into the wilderness of faith where all the trappings are gone. All that is left is Christ and you. No, No manger scene, no nativity play, no wonderful renditions of O Holy Night. Just you and Jesus, as he swallows up your sin, swallows up your fears, swallows up your doubt, and leaves you with just him, his grace, his mercy, his type of Christmas. I hope that will be so for you. Happy Advent. Thanks be to God. Amen.